Butcher Talk. Hey, what's up? Uh, this is the first episode of Butcher Bordello of Sound. Uh, I'm Zach Butcher. I've got Blade Brown with me, and uh, we've got the best possible intro uh, guests. We've got Dan Caffrey and Mike Vanderbilt. What's up, fellas? I've How's never said going? fellas. I'm sorry. Fella. <laughs> <laughs> the fella, fellas, that's a good... I, like I always fella. think fellas is like an old-timey 1920s. Uh, right, thing. yeah. That little fellow over there. I always like. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you for having. Good to be back with you guys. I know we've uh, we did the other podcast. Yes, and we've been trying to wrangle a date for me to come back because we had so much fun the last time. But this will be this will be great because uh, I don't usually get to talk about music until recently when I started that cheap trick podcast. So this will be fun. Hell yeah. So um, the the base of this works the same as Bebop, uh, Vanderbilt. I do not expect you to remember a thing we did last year. Dan, I don't expect you to remember a thing we did an hour ago. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what is uh, what's your guys's earliest memory of music? I have a very uh, very specific one. We're talking like rock music, right? Or like I like I mean, not. I mean, I guess I you know. I, I guess know, if I probably... you like if you grew up religious and you're like, dude, you know, I heard. Well, you know, I remember like my mom, you know, like saying like "Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star" to me or whatever. But sure, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll go with rock music. So, um, we we were living in Audubon, New Jersey. It's the house. It's like the first house I remember being in. And this is real. This actually kind of crosses over with horror a little bit. I remember my dad was listening to. He's a big Silly Dan fan, and so am I. And he was listening to "Reeling in the Years" while he was working out in the garage. And so I remember hearing that that song really specifically. And this is where it gets a little bizarre. I remember seeing this local commercial of this kind of big fat bald guy selling cars or something. I don't, but I think I maybe made this up. I think it was like a dream I had or something. And then I remember going into the garage and reeling in the years was on. And I remember looking into like this mirror we had in the garage and seeing this kind of creepy bald fat guy start singing along with it. And by, I'm pretty sure it was just like a nightmare I had. I don't think that actually happened. And I didn't know what the actual lyrics were. I th- I thought instead of saying, are you gathering up the tears, that Steely Dan was saying, gathering up the tees. And I remember looking in the mirror and seeing this weird character going, tees, like that, <laughs> and, and associating that with Steely Dan. So actually hearing Real in the Years is the first popular song uh, in my memory. I'm sure it happened. The rest of it might be just a, some kind of weird dream I had as a kid. So yeah, that. but that was, I always say that's my earliest musical memory. Okay. Vanderbilt, what's up? So... My ma says that when uh, she would sing to me and that when I would want her to sing, I would wave my hand like a conductor from my you know little baby seat. I had one of those, uh, the ones that you, you can walk around in. It's got the wheels on it. Oh, yeah. Took a tumble down the stairs in there once. And my mom still claims I didn't even cry. <laughs> I'd buy that. You're not. I mean. Hey, we know how you we know how you love crying in movies or on Twitter, right? <laughs> <laughs> crying about movies on Twitter. Yeah, I started I started a trend of being men, or not the trend, but like men don't cry. No, I just didn't want to bother anybody. I think. But then, you know, my mom she liked pop music. She liked Elvis. She was an Elvis man or Elvis man. She was <laughs> a she was an Elvis girl. Never liked the Beatles. Really was into the Raspberries more than the Beatles. And but she liked '80s pop music. Like that's when I was coming up. I was born in '80, and she was never an album person she liked singles she's not the kind of person that could sit down and talk to you even to this day about how much she likes an album so she would buy the 45s and then make a tape and we would listen to whatever tape she put together incessantly throughout the house so my dad he likes music but he's another one he don't pick up records he doesn't have he his favorite artists now are probably my band the romero's 
uh, Cheap Trick and the Killers, and that's just because that's what I turned him on to. Like, those are the only bands he knows in. And I know, I mean, he does know music, but again, just not, they were never people that bought albums, which is interesting that me and my brother are the opposite in the fact that we kind of become obsessive about our favorite bands. Um, and as far as, like, I remember, I remember the first tape that I wanted to buy. Like, that I made the decision that it wasn't a gift or anything. And it was Genesis's Invisible Touch oh, nice. in 86 because I, my mom, my parents could be somewhat overbearing in certain things, but when it came to pop culture stuff or, you know, in the house, it was all bets were off. So I would be able to stay up as late as I want, watch whatever I want. And I was up watching Friday Night Videos. Genesis was hosting. They played the video for Invisible Touch. I just dug that song. My mom, my parents, I think, were at a party or something because my mom, I remember her coming home and, oh, what's going on? What do you watch? I'm like, oh, I'm watching Friday Night Videos. And she liked watching Friday Night Videos because that was before we had cable, so we didn't have VH1 and MTV yet. And she, I'm like, I want this guy. I want these guys. I don't know who these guys are, but I want their tape. And that was, and I've since owned that, I think, on every format, uh, all the way uh, to, you know, probably downloading it off of iTunes. Damn, so that's a pretty long attachment for something like that. You've just taken it through every format change possible. Yeah, I never bought the gold. Remember when they would release twenty the 24-karat Master Series? In the oh, yes, yes. It a gold disc, and it was supposed to have better sound quality. I, I'm not much of an audiophile, so I can't uh, say how true that is. My dad had one. It was like a David Bowie album, and it never sounded any different. I was just like, oh, yeah, okay. This is – it looks cool, but – well, yeah, no real thought, fucking difference. <laughs> you know, we were all excited for our first CD. Well, I know, you know my age, I was excited for my first CD player. Now we found out CDs kind of suck, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I can tell the, I can definitely tell the difference between a good remaster, good digital remaster, like um, as opposed to, you know, the original CD that came out in the eighties or whatever. Like, I got all the Dire Straits remasters a few years ago, and I could definitely tell the difference between the original CDs and those ones. But as far as the vinyl goes, like the oh the what 180 Warm. gram audiophile site oh, yeah. yeah, it all sounds kind of crackly to me i think the 180 gram is truly a a scam just to get people <laughs> to buy it yeah. again I, I own quite a few because sometimes that's what it comes out on like when they reissued when they reissue something that's just what the record comes out on now but most times i would rather just go to the used record store and try and find a pretty good at least you can find a great one good but a pretty good copy of a used one from the era right going to look and find something that you didn't expect to find is always a really nice bonus i tell you I... About one, of, one of my favorite stories about that like so there's a record store by my house I, I, you know, I still pretty much live in the same neighborhood i grew up in and there's a record store called beverly records and beverly records it's been around forever and when i was f- 14 i saw heavy metal on TBS Netflix with uh, Vampire Hunter D and I wanted that soundtrack. I needed that soundtrack, yeah. but it wasn't available on CD until the late nineties because all the rights were all, uh, they hadn't worked them out for CD. They'd only worked them out for vinyl and cassette. So you could still find it on vinyl and cassette. And I told my mom, Hey, one Friday afternoon at school, can you take me over to Beverly records? Took me over there. I went looking for the heavy metal soundtrack and God damn it. If it wasn't there, one copy <laughs> the best feeling. for $5. I still, because that's the kind of thing you go looking for. Well, like, oh, they don't have it, you know, out of luck. But they actually fucking had it, and that's still the copy that I have to this day. I, I remember uh, when it came, when the movie came out in VHS in the 90s, and they had a commercial for 
the soundtrack being available for the first time on CD in front of the movie. They don't really do that anymore. But yeah, but like even Scream, I remember had a bumper for the Scream soundtrack before the movie started. Right. I think From Dust Till Dawn had one as well. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it showed ZZ Top playing yeah. uh, um, the She's Just Killing Me, blood, which that that video is really funny. It's um, them playing and then <laughs> with these interludes of George Clooney, but it's vague whether he's in character or not, playing basketball, basketball. with um, Sama High. It's a really bizarre <laughs> video. I uh, I just rewatched From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, my my fiance had never seen it, and I, I was like, oh, you know, we're going to watch it. And um, Is that Yellow Cujo in the background? That's right, dude. <laughs> Goddamn. Yeah. Um, or a little bat. Maybe it's a bat squeaking since you're talking about the From Dust Till Dawn. See, we jinxed it because in between podcasts, we were like, yeah, you didn't even get to hear the dogs. And yeah. now here it is. Here's I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. No, hey, it adds, adds character. But yeah, so, 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 uh, so we we rewatched it and uh, I'm, I'm watching the band and I'm like, yo, that drummer looks really familiar. And Becca, my fiance and I were huge Oingo Boingo fans. It's the fucking drummer from Oingo Boingo. And I was like, well, that's cool. You know, it's a nice little thing. And then I was like looking him up on IMDb. It was like the only thing he did of note. And I was like, well. I guess well, that kind of sucks he, too. He, I wanted to, uh, go ahead, Dan. I think you're going to. Well, no, I was going to say, isn't the, isn't the band Tito and Tarantula? Did he join Tito and Tarantula what, after that? I was like, is he just in this band? And like, they were just like, oh, like it just was his name, which I cannot think of right now. Like Johnny Vatos, I think is his name, and that was it. I was just like, so was he like you know part of the trio? That, it would make sense that he would have joined up with Tito and Tarantula. I, I don't know. I think is Oigo Boigo L.A. Yeah, they were Los Angeles, yeah, and I think they technically broke up in, like, 96. So right. I guess it could line up, but I'm like, they, they, in theory, they filmed this movie in, like, 95, and the movie came out in 96, right? Johnny, Va- Johnny Vatos Hernandez? Yeah, he's was, listed. Was, in fact, a member of... Damn, okay. Joe and Tarantula. Right on. Well, and there we go, yeah. Yeah, for yeah for 97, 2001, yeah, so that would have been... He would have had just joined, I think... Um, when from dust till dawn was because he wanted uh, to get into from dust till dawn. This is yeah. this is infotainment. <laughs> this is informational and entertaining. That's that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh... Dan, I, I almost feel sorry for like saying this to you because like Vanderbilt, when we, we we asked him to come back on, I was like, well, you know, I was like, we've talked to you about uh, movies. I want to talk to you about music, but I was like, the other important Mike Vanderbilt thing, I want to talk about sex with Mike Vanderbilt. <laughs> the, the first time I uh, the first time I saw From Dust Till Dawn, I was like, yo, it's sucking. There we go. <laughs> I was like, is sucking toes cool? Like I yeah. Zel- like Zelma Hayek. I'm like, yo, is this it? And Becca and I are watching it. And then um like a month ago, Becca was like, Oh, um, I want to watch Wild Wild West. Zelma Hayek's in it. And I was like, Why did you say that? And they were like, Well, you said that you thought Zelma Hayek was hot and from dust till dawn. I'm like, that's it, full stop. I was like, I don't want to rewatch Wild Wild West. Like, I don't think she's hot. And he, she was just like all right. Well, I mean, Jane sorry, whatever, man. Watch Wild Wild West. Exactly. I was but like, this isn't this isn't my one, selling point. <laughs> one out of three people who came of age in the '90s has a foot fetish. It's just a thing. It was the fetish du jour of the '90s. And I mean, Tarantino was so big, so like, he and just you know he's you know, pushing it in. Talk, I, I I love how he's like. It's obvious that he has one, but when people ask him, I go, "No, no, I don't." Right? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just like a great troll job. Yeah. I mean, Fernando Dom was probably the first. I mean, honestly, there's not many movies where you see people actually sucking on toes, but I think that was the first instance <laughs> of of that where where I saw it in a film. Um, yeah, during that sequence, I, I feel like from Dustledon for 
yeah, depending on which way you swing sexually is probably very informative for a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of young men. To say the least. Yeah. Ashley, my bartending partner, and I were head from dust to dawn at the bar one night, and she'll never she'll she'll always give me shit for how upset I was when I found out that George Clooney was only thirty five in that <laughs> film, and at that point I was forty. <laughs> I I remember I saw it for the first time. I was uh, like eleven or twelve, and I was trying to explain it to my friends in school, and they're like the guy that plays Batman is in this cool vampire movie. And I'm like, no, it's really cool. And the one kid was like that guy that my mom likes from the ER show. And I'm like, look, I'm telling you, like, it's cool. <laughs> well, yeah, we went, I fond memories of my mom driving my friend Dan and I to opening day. It was, it was January of 96. So we weren't driving yet. We had just finished up midterms. We were both really jazzed for this because we were horror movie fans. We were Pulp Fiction fans. Right. This is this is the ultimate combination, and we meet, it was us and one other guy at the first afternoon show at Ford City fourteen, and I I absolutely fell in love with that movie, and that's still one of my favorites. Uh, totally holds up too. Yeah, it it rules. the The vampires look like that typical like nineties Buffy style vampire. The soundtrack beats ass. I mean, I'm a huge fan. The same. Blasters are a band that I should like a lot more than I do. I'm but, I'm in the same boat. But Dark, because they never really did anything else that sounded quite like Dark Knight. Dark Knights, yeah. They did more of their stuff, like especially if you hear them on, like, what's that? The Streets of Fire soundtrack. It's a little bit more traditional honky-tonk, rockabilly kind of right. shit. But Dark Knight is this cool, it's like a southern gothic murder story yeah yeah to a badass rock tune with a little country twang i think and what a way to end and open that picture right dark knight feels like it was written like for a vampire western like it feels perfect for that movie absolutely and stevie ray vaughn's on there tito and tarantula are great yeah ZZ Top, ZZ Top's got a couple. They have ZZ Top's uh, on there two or three times. Yeah, they have. They have the "She's Just Killing Me," which is a great latter day ZZ Top song. But then they have like Mexican Blackbird, which is a really funny kind of yeah. you know country riff that they did. Because uh, they have a few like jokey kind of like overly country songs like that. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, well, Stevie Ray Vaughan. I think Mary Had a Little Lamb is on there. Yeah. Um, isn't Willie the Wimp and his Cadillac Coffin on there? It as well? is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a, that is a great soundtrack. That and the Desperado soundtrack are, are both two Desperado's of my favorites. Los great. Lobos is on both of them. Fuck yeah. Uh, the Mavericks, Foolish Heart, one of my favorite too. Insane song. Absolutely so amazing. Good. And they're a, yeah. they're a cool band to go check out. Like They're not quite alternative country, but they were, as far as like popular country from that era, they were the cool guys that you could like if you were a rock guy or a pop guy. Right. They like because like Chris Isaac had like the David Lynch fandom, but it right. wasn't as like badass as something like the Mavericks. Yeah, the Mavericks were just cool. Like they were a pop band. That they they kind of got like they. The singer sounds more like Roy Orbison than anything you'd hear on country radio in yeah. the nineties of that era. But yeah, the Mavericks are Mavericks are great. What a cool band. Their uh, next album, the album that came out there, Trampoline. They started incorporating horns into their sound. Trampoline is a great record all the way through as well. So moving, uh, moving Hold from on. like, <laughs> I gotta say, I'm finally glad I understand what you guys are talking about because I saw that movie for the first time last year, and it came oh hell out. yeah, hell yeah, that rules, buddy. Yeah, thank you. I, it's a very good movie. <laughs> <laughs> yep, just wanted to let you know I understood all of that. Unlike good. the last <laughs> half hour of like our, we just recorded one with Dan, 
like an hour ago, and I didn't understand like the last forty five fucking minutes of what you we guys were talking about. about. Comic Wait. books and theater for like an hour straight. So, oh man, Jeffrey, yeah. you're on a podcasting marathon today, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I, so we said we debate if we were going to do just one or two, and we said that let's go whole hog. But uh, yeah, so even though I'm not an army, I'll I'll get my three hour podcast uh, fixed. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> this weekend, isn't it nice? Just to you know, not have to deal with the other guys for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, fuck those guys. I can't believe a bunch of assholes. I can't stand them. Vander's oh, the only one I like. I hate the rest of them. So. Nice, nice. Hell yeah. Ever since they uh, cut Vanderbilt out of Scream Four, I've been pissed off. Anyways, that's right. I, I, oh no, they did not cut me out of Scream Four. I chose, I chose not to do Scream Four because I have learned on that show that it is hard for me to do episodes on movies that I just don't care about if i don't yeah. like if i don't like a movie that can be fun but for movies like I, it's why i i don't know uh if i'm going to be on the evil dead remake or not because the movie i eh, i just yeah, don't have ooh, strong feelings on it one way or the other but i i really I'll like always the... be the, if, if there there needs to be a fourth on the episode i will yeah. be the fourth and i will do the research and i will have something to say be it positive or negative <laughs> I think Sam Raimi calls it Evil Dead 4, so I've just been calling it Evil Dead 4. Does he really? I didn't even know that. I think I'm on that episode, but yeah. Technically, if you want to go by this goofball who uh, has the Twitter account about uh, Evil Dead being a standalone film, technically, Evil Dead, the remake, is actually Evil Dead 2. Because it takes place oh, in it takes place in the universe where Ash died at the end of the Evil Dead, and that's why the Delta is sitting there rusted out when they come up to the cabin. Uh, oh, see, well, oh. you know, and we think Halloween 2018 did it first. It was Evil Dead 2013. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about a movie, you want to talk about movies with fucked up timelines. Nothing beats the National Lampoon's Vacation movies. Yeah, that's true. Well, just even the kid, I don't mind that they get different actors to play the kids, but the kids' ages fluctuate wildly. And uh, then we- there's a sequel <laughs> to Christmas Vacation specifically. It's Eddie. Was it Eddie's like holiday Eddie's bash or something? Yeah. Shit. Yeah. There's a sequel within there that I guess crosses time and space with Vegas Vacation. That's the <laughs> timeline that I want to see somebody come up with. Mike, they could you probably have like a, pull a you Terminator. You know, they could they could retcon something. <laughs> and a, from Dust to Connection, the Christmas Vacation features Juliet Lewis. Oh yeah, there we go. Um. What uh? What's your guys's earliest memory of music that you've made? When I was yeah, when I was sixteen, um, I grew up in Newport Ritchie, Florida, which is like a lot of suburbs of Florida has a very big redneck contingent to it, even though it's sort of normal suburbs. And specifically, it has a contingent. So there's like the actual rednecks, which live in one section of the town, and then there's like, in my opinion, kind of these um wannabe rednecks that are like these really rich kids that live in this neighborhood called hidden lakes which uh literally it's people who own airplanes live there they have like airplane hangers on their property okay and so something i would observe a lot in high school was you had like the actually authentic rednecks who were like mud bogging on the weekend and you know lived in the woods and whatever and then you had these guys who hung out with them that were really rich and so they would buy these cowboy hats that were really nice so it was like it was like they're rednecks but they had really nice shit and I, I wrote a song about it called Million Dollar Redneck when I was like 16. And I tried to get a band together to to um, rehearse it. 
and I don't know, I did this thing. I, I, I kind of invited all my friends to come along and play in my garage, which I probably shouldn't have done because I was trying to give a give like a duty to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I was like having people sing who didn't really know how to sing. And I'm like, oh, I should have just ha- handled the singing all myself, you know, but I was trying to be nice to my friends. So I think it was a pretty good, okay song for like a punk song for a 16 year old to write. But I, I don't think I was um, judicious enough to get it off the ground. If had I just limited it to myself on bass and vocals, my other friend on drum, my other friend on guitars, and they could, we maybe could have recorded and have gotten it sounding good, but uh, instead it just became a total clusterfuck and we never really did much with it. Maybe I'll, I'll record it one day. There we go. Yeah. I, you know, I was a late bloomer when it came to writing, performing music because I just never thought I was cool enough to do it, I guess. I had like the, the rock was, star of horror Twitter I, is just like, yeah, you know. Uh, you know, I, I had, I, Never had long hair in high school, was never into the grunge scene, kind of hated that crowd because I never felt like a, even though when people look back at grunge and alternative, whatever you want to call it for the 90s about how it was this, this, uh, what do I want to say, this outpost for the, the, uh, what do I say, the rejects, the mutants, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. I never felt like I was part of that either. I've always had a chip on my shoulder about shit. No, I just never did anything. I liked me and I didn't like that music. And I was into 70 or rather in the nineties. I was more into, I was buying soundtracks like from Dustal Dawn or Pulp Fiction. And I was into Meatloaf and Cheap Trick. And I was into more 70s stuff and disco. So I finally said, okay, I want to learn learn to play guitar. So I went to, ah, what was the name of the place? It's no longer there, but it was on Western Avenue run by two old black blues dudes and bought my first, charvel strat copy which i still have and it still plays like shit and <laughs> but didn't start taking lessons till i was like 20 like figured oh i'll learn at home but so by the time i'm 22 like i i, I want to meet girls i want to be in a band uh so i buy a fostex 16 track recorder and just started writing songs and recording them at home and the one i always remember because i thought it was the title was so clever was one more drink for the driver because i wanted to be like in a like early wilco uncle tupelo old 97 style like kind of cowpunk country cowpunk yeah uh, hell yeah thing uh and you know i was just kind of fucking around at home and it was actually i owe it to my buddy pat o'sullivan who he and I, we've podcasted together. We've made movies together. We've been on many great adventures together. But he and I, I think we're just tired of not being asked to be in every band in the neighborhood because we're, we're both shit players. We're both sub players. <laughs> uh, I think I was slightly better than Pat because he was a bass player. I was a guitar player. But when we showed up to practice at his mom's garage in our 20s, uh, I'm like, all right, this one's an A. And he's like, what's A? Hell yeah. And I had to point the number. Like, I had to go up to the bass and go, that's A. Like, I'm not, a, I can't read music or anything, but I knew that much. So I taught him A, B, C, D, and E. And then, you know, and then we had to work on minor chords. Um, then we started writing and we started, I, I was a songwriter driven band. I wrote most of the songs and therefore I had to sing the songs, even though I've never thought of myself as being a singer. I thought I was going to be Rick Nielsen. I was going to be the guitar player problem was I wasn't that good of a, I'm a shit lead guitar player. So I think my best stint in a band would have been when I play with modern day rippers where all I had to do was write, write songs, like write music, not even write lyrics, right? Play rhythm guitar and do backup vocals. That that's my sweet spot as a musician. I think, uh, I mean, I've heard the Romero's and I've heard, uh, 
one album of what Dan has done. And I think both of those are great bands. And I, I think it's interesting that uh, both of you guys are like, oh yeah, you know, I started and it was Rocky. And cause I, I don't know. It seems very well, natural. I think more people need to hear that because I thought I was so delusional at 22 that I thought, well, I started a band. Everybody, all my friends will come to my show. It'll be a, it'll sure, be a rock yeah. scene, you know, and yeah. we'll have a backstage area and there'll be a rider. And, and I was delusional enough to think that. And of course it wasn't like that. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I don't, I, I don't miss those days necessarily. Cause I will say one area, like I don't play out live anymore. Uh, I'm currently trying to get a couple projects off the ground, but I'm at a point now where I don't think I'll play anywhere that doesn't have their own PA. That's like sure, the fussiest yeah. I'll get. That's the most rock star I'll get. Like if you don't have a PA, like I'll forgive you not having a stage and lights, but if I've got to bring the sound, like forget it. Cause I know it's just going to sound like shit in there. Yeah. And I, it, it's funny because I, in Chicago, I played in a few bands. I played, uh, Mac and I had a band uh, called Fiend of Scotland in college. That was just kind of like a jokey folk rock thing. And then we had this band, the Elizabeth Dane with our editor may of Halloweenies and, uh, our other friend John. What do you say? Named after. Oh yeah, named after. I don't know if you, do you guys. I don't know if you do. You know what that's named after? No. Named after the uh, ship in the fog. And um, oh yeah, shit. We, yeah, yeah. And Sorry. we we, we put out that's that's like the most I've ever played live. But and I, and once again, I was a pretty rudimentary bass player, and all those guys are May, John, and Mackerel. May especially is just incredible musician compared hear, to me. But I, I've heard that about May. Maeve can play like everything and had all sorts of genres and, um, and, and, but I could play well enough to where, and where well, I, you're only I could bring, you're only the bass player. And the bass, it's the idiot's <laughs> instrument. I could bring the bass and I had, I had, we had two albums we put out and I, I sang, I wrote and sang like two or three songs on, on, uh, each one. And I was pretty proud of it. Like we had we put, we put it out in vinyl, put it out in tape. And that was the period of my life where I was playing, shows the most and then mike and mac and i had uh, rothman and mac and i had another band um called library ghost uh, named after ghostbusters that just yeah. literally did an ep and and also played shows fairly regularly and because of mike's connections because it was when he was running consequence we got to play venues we probably shouldn't have been playing just because like we <laughs> weren't good best, I, mean, we, I thought our songs best, are good what was we the just, best venue you played um probably we got to play Double Door and Shubas, um, ah, those uh, are, uh, which which were like legit. Those are legit, like two big ones. I've never done Shubas. I've done yeah, Double like Door, but legit Shubas. indie venues, right? And um, we once again, I stand behind the songs we wrote, but we weren't, we just weren't practicing enough to be good, and so it was like super sloppy. Um, and then yeah, and honestly, so playing the, a show is different. Than oh, it totally being, is. It, you, being it, rehearsed, and the only way you get good to play a show is by playing a bunch of shitty shows. Exactly. Yeah. And we got that part out of the way and then we just broke up before we But I think I really I really do think that we wrote we just bought this power pop EP called the Charlie Brewster EP that uh was on the horror movie reference that I, I it's on Bandcamp, I still stand by it. And then and then it was funny because before I left uh for grad school to Austin, May and I both of our band our bands were all done by then at that point. But I wrote like a whole solo album by myself and I played it with May. I, I did uh, all the bass and vocals and some guitar and May did everything else. And it, it's interesting thinking about this thing of like, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not a rock star, this or that. I put out this record. It was called Giants and we recorded under the name Methodist Hospital. And we never did anything with it because we haven't lived in the same city for five years now. And on a whim, I like drunkenly one night, I was at a writer's conference. So I drunkenly sent it to Robert Criscow, who's like my favorite rock critic of all time. And he 
he actually did end up reviewing it and gave us like an A minus and, and noisy at the time and put us oh. on his list at the end of the oh, year. Yeah. And so it was this thing when we think about, oh, what our skills are, whatever else. I'm still definitely not the most proficient musician. I'm not um, prolific in the way that a lot of them are. But at the end of the day, I'm, I really I'm really proud of that album. And, you know, I I was so shy and felt so stupid about sending that to him afterwards. I'm like, why? Why would I do that? Like, I'm just going to embarrass myself. And it worked, right? And, and we don't shy, we don't have right? a huge following or anything, but like I've I made a little bit of money off that record, and more people have heard it because of this one review that came out. And so I guess to Mike's point, I think it's I think so many musicians feel insecure. I mean, yeah. the band we're going to talk about in a little bit, right? <laughs> like, and then, yeah. and then just don't think they can do it. But then when you break it down, you're like, no. When I look back, I'm like, no, I'm really proud of that record. And like, yeah, I'm not the best musician, but I, I know I can write lyrics really well, and I, I'm confident in my singing voice. And we put it out there and actually did a little something with it. Right. So I, yeah, I don't know. I, I would, I would just encourage not, not to sound like Tony Robbins, but <laughs> anyone to get over there, their insecurities about that stuff. Cause I never once in my life have felt like any kind of rock star or whatever else, right. but I, I had enough skill to put together a few records and that I can really get behind to across a few bands. So, um, and y'all know too, I'm sure being in, you, you're, you're all pretty regular musicians and actually put the shit out there. Like, I think you just got to create it and then and then feel good about it and see what happens. What's great about when you write the song and you sing it, that's how it's supposed to sound. No yeah. one can necessarily yeah, yeah, yeah. sing that better than you, you know. So I just when I wrote songs, I wrote for my voice. Like, what can my voice do? It can't. I can't do a whole heck of a lot. But then, like <laughs> all great frontmen, I surrounded myself with much better musicians. <laughs> exactly. Who can do yeah. the harmony vocals and who <laughs> can do all sorts of extra extra stuff and all sorts of bells. And whistles like to your point dan like i'm i i, I can't you know the romero stuff some of it like i listen to the lyrics i'm a little embarrassed by it but when i get a couple pops of me and i put on that there's this one show well there's two shows that i'm really proud of there's one show yeah i was gonna say where yeah where do your shining chicago because you get you i think you probably played more shows than i did i'm guessing well there was a time when we were just playing once a week particularly in our 20s because that's where the party was yeah that's how elizabeth we, dane was too we, we, once, we got into once a week cadence for a little like, bit we're going to play somewhere. Everybody's going to come. Whoever's going to come see us, going to come see us. Then we're going back to my apartment in Blue Island and we're going to party all night. And we're going to pick up the instruments again and do a bunch of replacements <laughs> covers until <laughs> six in the morning. But some of my favorites are like, uh, there's a show online from the red line tap, which was, I think our, oh, first, yeah. our first time back in a while. And it was our first show with a full horn section. And we had, you know, we just, our, my saxophone player, Alex Francois, they found these, he had, well, what was it? I think it was his girlfriend and a guy that he paid a little bit of money, a real good player came out and they had sheet music. We practiced with horns first time that afternoon and it was awesome. Like, and we were just on fire. The band, we had practiced, we were tight. Uh, there's another good show from the Taste. We got to play the Taste of Chicago at the Best Buy stage. Oh, damn, really? Fuck right? yeah. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. No, because like, like Stevie Wonder plays the Taste of Chicago. The, the replacement's final gig was at, at the Taste, Taste of, of Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> we, are, we are a little further away from that stage. Uh, <laughs> no, I picked, I remember I picked the third, I think, was it the, I forgot what night I picked, but I said, oh, this, or afternoon, it was an afternoon gig. What, oh, this is going to be the one. And then it rained. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. You know, it it is funny when you get that because the Elizabeth Dane, we were around a few years and we did get past that point where we, we were doing shitty shows all the time. And it is funny when you lock into those gigs where everything's just kind of clicking and it doesn't always happen at the best venue either. Sometimes it happens when it's a smaller crowd and whatever else. Like, I don't know, that is kind of this magical feeling. And once again, I think if you're in a band long enough, that becomes more of the norm than just 
completely well, falling apart. Every I remember time play. playing right. those those first gigs as well, the Romeros were the crazy 88s for a minute because Kill Bill had just come out. <laughs> and good. we uh, I remember getting on that stage and it was maybe my second show. This is my second time playing guitar in front of people outside of maybe the occasional mic. And I was so fucking nervous. Like my whole body was shaking and I know it, I, I'm glad there's no videotape of that show because I know it's terrible. But then you flash forward. I mean, we'd been doing it, you know, that's 03 by 2013. We've been doing it for 10 years or I've been doing it for 10 years. And it's like going to work. You plug in your instrument and I would still get a little bit of that nervousness, but it was more excitement than anything. Right. But to see yourself grow is cool when you, cause I don't know about you guys. Do you guys remember playing that first show? And I, you're nervous? I do. I do. I remember my, so I was in a doom band and uh, our first show was like, we played second on this weird lineup. And I remember like, every song felt even longer than it should have. You know, I was so <laughs> nervous and I was just like, Oh, this is so insane. Like, I, I hate this. Like, I don't know. And then, you know, we played like two or three more shows and I was like, maybe I just don't like doing this. And it was like show five. I was like, Oh, this is fun. Okay. And then in the band I'm in now, I was like our first show, like we played like in the middle of the sunlight, like underneath a tarp in August. <laughs> and I'm like, we're supposed to be like the scary band. And like my dad's there, like taking pictures, like yeah. as like a proud parent. And I'm like, my parents on, came to all of my shows, like for the yeah. hell there, because they liked getting out of the house. They were yeah. fun. And my mom liked the kind of music we were doing. Cause it was more in tune with that sixties pop, you know, that right. she dug. My, my mom and dad, like, we match up on a lot. Like, they showed me a lot of the stuff that I would consider, like, my my base of, like, music interest. But everything I've ever done, my dad's like, oh, it's death metal. And then, like, I'm friends with kids in death metal bands. And they're like, you, that's not even. And my dad's like, I don't give a shit. And it's just like, that dad, like, nothing matters. Like, it doesn't, I don't care what you say to me. Like, yeah. I'm old and don't care. And I'm like, this is good. <laughs> but, um. Yeah, so speaking no, of... something to say. Oh, I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry, buddy. Please, buddy. please, sorry. please. I didn't know there's a thing. There's a cool yeah. button on you this. You can press a little button of a hand, and it says you got something to say. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, we should use that. In, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned your dad, and I just wanted to make note that your dad just called me, and like yeah. I had to hit ignore, and I was like, I'm recording with your other son. Yeah. And he was like, no, okay, we'll talk later. And then he sends me a picture screenshot of a new windshield wiper and says mm. nothing about it. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it checks out. That's some big dad energy there. That's right. Yeah. My dad is uh my dad is forty nine going on eighty. Um he's Your dad is forty nine? Yeah, I'm twenty seven. Um oh, I'm sorry, Vanderbilt. <laughs> You're still young and hot. Don't worry, man. Thank you. I'm closer to your dad's age. I know, I know, I know. Vanderbilt's almost old enough to be your dad. Holy <laughs> fucking shit. Uh, we never toured Ohio, but maybe I was. I don't know. <laughs> but um, but my one of my favorite shows, and I have to talk about it because it was the anniversary just came up, and it goes to a lot of things that I, I think I talk about, things that mean a lot to me, is that I, I've always wanted to be somewhat of notoriety in Chicago. Like somebody in a band, and I always thought it would be in a band where – you're in that band and people know who you are. You go to a bar, right. people say hi to you or do you want to buy you a shot or something. And a couple years back, I got a message from my friend, uh, Samarama, kind of a local Chicago legend. They, uh, work at reckless or not reckless. They work at Lori's planet of sound. She was, uh, she's been a longtime Wilco fan. They've had a, a blog for years. 
coverings. She's just she's everybody knows her or everybody knows right. them. I I don't know how she identifies now, but she's cool. They're cool. Don't mm-hmm. forgive me. But they call me up and they say, well, what they told me was at Lori's Planet of Sound, they were going to do uh, for record store. They have bands cover bands or artists that died that year because it was that year that a lot of oh, people wow. died. Yeah. And you would have thought they would have called me up to do the Prince one. But they wanted oh, no. to do a George Michael and Wham one. And Sam says, oh, don't worry. I've got the perfect band for you. Calls me up. Says, can you guys put together, you know, a bunch of Wham and George Michael covers before Record Store Day in April? And I said, yeah. absolutely. And our lead guitar player actually sat that one out. He was going through his own shit at the time. And we had a good friend of mine sit in who's just this guy, V Sonnets. He was in this band of Sonnets. And just can, he's the kind of guy, he shows up for one practice. Don't worry, I got it. And you Hell don't yeah. worry. You know he's yeah. going to show up. You know he's going to bring his gear. It'd be good. And that show, we own the room. It's a small room. <laughs> it's a very small room. But we own the room at Record Store Day. So much to the fact that after Katie and I, Katie Ray, formerly the AV Club, had gotten dinner, we went down to Rock Island Public House just before I was working there for a beer. A friend of mine, this guy, Bran Harvey, he was in this band called The Returnables. And he was like my rock and roll uncle. He, because uh, he was a little bit older than me, he'd been around, and whenever I had it, needed advice about dealing with band members or recording or how do we do this, what do we do with that, he he was there. He had he had some insight, and he texts me. He says, "I don't want to give you a bit big head, Mike, but I'm part of this Facebook group of Chicago musicians, and everybody's raving about this band they saw doing Wham covers at <laughs> Lori's Planet of Sound that day." So it was that moment where I felt like I arrived. Yeah. Like I was yeah. somebody that somebody knew to call me. I wasn't fighting like I usually have to do with shit. Fighting my way, muscling my way on. Hey, 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 let us do. Let us do, let us do something. Let's do something. They called me. And it was a great show, too. That one's available on YouTube as well. That was a really good time. I, uh, I'm i a big Wham fan, so I'm kind of excited to check that out. Oh, it, I it think was... it'd be cool to see Mike Vanderbilt, you know, cover Under the Cherry Moon, but I'll still, I'll settle for Wham. That's fine. We did do, we did <laughs> close out the set with I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man because the band had been playing that one for years. Yeah. And nobody was doing a Prince tribute. So we said, we got to throw, we got to tack this one on on the end. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Which is um, cool when you can be that band when you practice enough where, like, can you guys do a Prince song? And you count it off. One, two, three, four. And everybody just kind of falls in line. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, so moving into the, the, the speaking highly of, important spe- thing. Speaking yeah. of Minneapolis. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the replacements. I, they are probably one of my top three bands of all time. I, I'm a huge fucking fan. Vanderbilt, I know that you're also a big fan. Dan, I was excited when I found out you were a fan. Blade, you've heard an album. Um, it's very good. That's what I got to say about it. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike, uh, I listened to one album. It was very good. <laughs> when we did when we did Vanderbilt's episode last year, we were talking about the replacements a little bit, and Blade was like, "I don't know what that is." Like Zach talks about him, what is that? And then he listened to Let It Be, and he was like, "Yeah, it was cool." And I was like, uh, you "Okay, should have put him on Tim, though." <laughs> so, no, yeah, him. Tim's the first one I heard. Yeah, right on. So I I remember um, 
I, I, you know, I have it as like a Facebook status and it was like, tried out the replacements today. They're pretty good. And I started with the beginning and I was like, sorry, Ma's where it's at. And I remember like going through like, let's say that week of my Facebook statuses and uh, I was a fool and I was like, oh yeah, please to meet me is the last good one. Where now it's like, you know, I've got like an answering machine tattoo. I'm just like, you know, let it be is like what I bleed for. And I'm just like, I was an idiot because at one point I was like, only the punk era. Like, that's where, that's where. I mean, I I even don't tell a soul and I'll shake down. Yeah, both of those are amazing. Like the true, I hate, I kind of hate the term, but I also love it because it, that true dad rock era of the Yeah. Because that that reminds me and this is a very chicago this is gonna be a very chicago reference i mean only chicago's that just is a very like cool older guy who still listens to xrt kind of sound that you get on don't tell a soul and all shook down yeah it, and it also too i mean because i'm a huge fan of paul westberg solo stuff too that came afterwards which yeah. is that which is funny because he kind of circles back around to doing more sloppy punk stuff oh, as great grandpa boy and all the other stuff like oh yeah and, yeah and, and uh but it's but it's funny because you see they always say like oh soul asylum and goo goo dolls is kind of like their their early stuff oh that's what their placements would have kept heading toward and i don't actually don't know if i completely believe that maybe that first goo goo dolls album but uh I know there's this band called Big Nothing that's in Philadelphia um, that's following a similar trajectory just without being super famous. Like they're they have <laughs> one, two albums that are like just pretty straightforward punk, and they released this album called Dog Hours this year. That's no joke, incredible. It sounds like, like Mike Robin described it as in. 90s fairly brothers movies when they get in the car and do the road trip and the song kicks in like that oh, like yeah. every song is kind of like that like, and to me like- that is like the all shook down uh, you know don't tell soul like evolution toward replacements big big nothing's really good and I, I believe it it's gas giants in dumb and dumber that plays when they do that when i find my heaven which is a very yeah. kind of uh a replacement exploitation kind of tune yeah. oh the win, the win i find my win i find yeah. my head <laughs> yeah. so what what's like What's your guys' first real memory of the replacements or of Paul Westerberg or, you know, anything, any of that? It it could be like Husker Du first. Mine is, I was on a podcast called The Butcher Bordello Blood, (laughs) and these two guys (laughs) talked about the replacements for like 30 fucking minutes. And and you thought it was pretty good, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mine, mine, uh, mine, I was actually a bit of a latecomer to the replacements, um, my senior year of college, so this would have mm-hmm. been 2005, 2006, I would actually hear Rothman talk about them all the time because we were friends by that point. And he lo- he's loved, like Paul Westbrook, I think his favorite musician, but I had never really heard them. And then I was visiting my grandparents at the Jersey Shore and my uncle had a bunch of his CDs in the basement and it was actually the all for nothing, nothing for all compilation. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, Rothman always goes on about these guys. I, I got to put this on. So I did. And I don't... Left of the Dial is the first track on that compilation, but for which is a great song, obviously. But about halfway through, Alex Chilton came on, and that was like the lightning bolt yeah. moment for me. Just that coming on and loving that chord progression. The down, 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 and then, and then, I mean, this is still probably my favorite replacements musical moment, where the distortion drops out and it's just the acoustic guitar going and you have the cowbell bell in the background a little right. bit. It's, it's just the acoustic version of the chorus. I don't know, man, that just did me in. And I knew I had to get everything by this band at that point. And so when I got back to Tallahassee uh, for the, 
after the summer break. Uh, it's not around anymore. There's a record store called Vinyl Fever, um, and I bought Tim. They had a used copy of Tim that I got um, that I just wore out, and then it got pleased to meet me. And then yeah, I, I got into it in a weird, a weird order. And then after I moved to Chicago, the library had let it be. And then one Christmas, I'm like, okay, I need to finish out with their the rest of the stuff I've never heard. So I did the 90s, Don't Tell a Soul, uh, All Shook Down. And then I went back to the early punk stuff like Stink and Hootenanny yeah, and, and yeah. Don't Tell Ma, which that's actually my least favorite. I know for some people that's like the the golden era. And I like those records, but I really love – I mean, for me, Hootenanny onwards because – I feel like that's when Westerberg really tapped into his gift for melody. Like this idea that even if he's singing the roughest, sloppiest song, it has just such hooks in it. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't get that so much from don't tell ma and uh, stink, but yeah. So it was this sort of like gradual obsession. It was over time. And then we, um, we, we actually went uh, to Minneapolis to see the reunion. Um, it was like the hold steady Lucero and replacements. And then I, awesome. I saw them play a few times on that reunion tour. I think Mike Rothman and Halloween saw them like, eight times or i mean he was like almost like following the band like dave matthews style so yeah that's my my very uh brief summary of my replacements journey and, yeah, and yeah. i've just been obsessed for like a decade now yeah vanderbilt you used to like work in music stores and stuff right like were I, you just copping that shit you know well in to, person to tie into what i was saying earlier about my parents like it was cool having parents who got you into music and but uh, since i didn't have an older brother or sister i was kind of on my own I had mm-hmm. to find out what was cool, which is, you know, leads you to go down some suspect uh, favorite bands throughout yeah. your, your youth. Hold on, wait, and, you need you to pause. What's your favorite suspect favorite band? Oh, I see. I don't have any anymore because now that I've gotten older that I, I don't care. Like, so from that era, it might have been something like Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh, sure. Like, OK. That first yeah. record is fucking awesome. Suspect is questionable, not as in like this guy really really likes Gigi Allen a lot, huh? No, dude, I I listened to Cracked Rearview and like that, that's kind of in the line with that 90s replacement shit we're talking about, that kind of jangly, almost like REM influence. In a different different universe, the Hootie Hootie and a Blowfish was like the new replacements, you know? Yeah, (laughs) the Southern replacements. Yeah, something like, I mean, that's not what they're, but I remember that first song, Hannah Jane off of uh, Cracked Rearview, I was in the car listening to I was driving Driving a friend of mine home, and he said, "Is this Bob Mold?" And then <laughs> I listen to, I listen to the guitar, Mold. and I'm like, "Yeah, I could see how this could pass for yeah. Bob Mold." because it because it has that snare hit. It's like and it's like, yeah, oh, that's that's yeah, really funny. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, pop, which it wouldn't surprise me if the, the guitar player for Hootie and Blowfish, whoever that may be, there's a good there's a book coming out by him by their like manager that's coming out within a month that I want to check out. I actually but about Hootie, yeah. Oh, I should read that. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm fascinated by that. May fifth, I think. I put it in an order for. It. But anyway, back to the replacements. But I had a guy. <laughs> so I worked at Camelot Music at Chicago Ridge Mall, and I had this guy Kevin McCullough, who I'm still friends with to this day. He's an editor out in LA. He works on the Jimmy Kimmel Show, and he became my cool older brother when it came to music. He introduced me to music and booze. Like he was the first. <laughs> like, he was a cool older guy who he had. He lived in his Paris basement in Oak Lawn, and he had all the great records, and you know you could drink in his basement, and. Uh, he would just give me mixtapes. And one of them, I think it was called Late Night Music for Late Night Lovers. And it had Little Mascara on it by the replacement. Oh, hell yeah. And I can't tell you what it was in between, but there were a lot of other good. I think Can't Hardly Wait may have been on that tape as well. And there were some Pixies. And he liked everything. He still does. He still puts out like a best of the year. He used to, when he'd come into town, because he moved out to LA, he'd have a best of the year two disc set that he would give you. And I rarely listen to him because I'm lazy and I'm a bad friend. But 
<laughs> Once I heard Little Mascara, I says, I have to find out who, because I was aware of the name. You know, but I didn't know anything about him because I didn't know anybody who liked the replacements. We didn't have anything at Camelot, but there was a used record store in the mall, which I cannot remember the name of now. They had one copy of they had a copy of Tim, and I picked it up and I opened it up and I'm looking at the picture inside. I'm like, well, they're a rock band. They have big hair, but they're not yeah. really a hair metal band. What is the deal with these guys? So I bought Tim and just wore that record out because. And I think, and I think this has been me my whole life. I love the dichotomy of the real emotional, you know, singer songwriter type stuff, but then the really fucking stupid stuff, like one <laughs> dose of yeah. thunder, like stupid with two O's. As I like, oh yeah, like, one it's dose like Wayne Clown cocaine, and which about cocaine. dose of thunder, just like such dumb shooting dirty pool, <laughs> red red water. Those are like the. The, they almost feel like the skippable tracks, but I love that they exist alongside stuff like Here Comes a Regular and right. Skyway. What are you going to play at a party? You ain't going to play fucking Skyway at a party. You're going to play <laughs> Lay It Down Clown at the yeah. party. And then from there, I just kind of grabbed what I could. Eventually, I was working at Borders, and I would just order whatever I could find. And it took me a long time to really dive into those early punk records. And yeah, I, I don't think it's unheard of that I'm one of these guys. Like it's it, For me, it's Let It Be, Tim pleased to meet me that is sure, a yeah. primo era of the replacements when they're a big fucking rock band it's I, funny too, too because like i it's funny that none of our store maybe un, unless i don't know zach maybe your story is it's funny that neither of our stories are like oh yeah i, I grew up going to these diy shows and i you know i love the punk but I, mean, I think too because replacements was predated all of us as far as like their heyday goes and so right. it's because yeah none, none of us had a, i mean all of our origin stories for replacements are very just yeah, I heard it. Kind of heard about them. I got this thing. I was blown away, and then I gradually got the rest of their stuff. Um, it, like it's weird because I've never. I know so many people value them for their DIY aesthetic and what they meant to the punk scene in Minneapolis. And that, yeah, for me, that's just like not not my journey with them at all. I actually just was well, I, for me it was all those hooks, man. It was they should have been on the radio. You know? And a lot of those people are liars. They're not <laughs> every, yeah, I agree. More I agree. people were dorky in high school. And I, 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 and I think the replacements are a testament to that. Like, oh, I yeah, dude. the replacements were not cool when they were teenagers. Well, and that's no. like, yeah. Because I think biggest influences were the fucking monkeys, you know, and, and, and AM pop, the stuff that I loved, I'd loved already. And I think I could, before knowing, you know, the ins and outs of music and influence. And because you think you know everything when you're 19, because I was 19 by the time I, when <laughs> I was getting replaced, 19, 20 years old. You, you think you know everything about music, but you don't know shit. I, I, so I remember, um, and I, I'm sorry, Vanderbilt, cause you were, you were hurt earlier. So I was 11 in 2006 <laughs> and, stop, uh, stop. <laughs> um, open season came out <laughs> and the soundtrack to open seasons, Paul Westerberg. And I'm like, yeah. yo, this actually fucking rules. Cause right I like to arm bears is one yeah. of Paul Westerberg's yeah. best fucking dunes. So I like, you know, I had mentioned earlier, like I lucked out, I had parents that liked cool stuff, you know, like they got me into punk. I was like 10 and green day blew the fuck up again. And I was like, 
oh man, you know, Green Day is like my new favorite band. And my mom and dad are like, yeah, they've been around for like 25 <laughs> years. Here's Dookie. And so like, you know, I, I, I like went backwards with that and they always talked about the replacements and I was like, okay. And then we went and saw open season and it's like music by Paul Westerberg. And I'm like, oh, that's that dude. Billy Joe Armstrong always talks about. And then a couple <laughs> years later, I'm into Husker Du. Like I, I like the, the punk era of Husker yeah. Du. And I'm like, I'm going to try out the replacements. And it's just, I'm like 14, you know, like I have a girlfriend, but I'm also six foot three and like 150 pounds. Like I look like a fucking idiot. And so it's like the the lyrics of the replacements make more sense to me than the lyrics of like the Smiths. I'm just like this, like it's well, the it's underdog, that, but in a different way. It's that Midwestness. It's yeah. Like, it, it, and it's in, sometimes it's intangible, but it's there. It's the same thing. It's, it's why I respond to cheap trick over Motley Crue. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, like, it's just, they, they hit on that punk level. Sure. But like what Vanderbilt was just saying, like, you know, how Caffrey's saying, like, there's these people that are like, oh, you know, like they were like these DIY gods, but they were like the DIY nerds. Like they were yeah. opening up for the cool punk bands and they were blowing every chance they got, which <laughs> in turn made them cooler. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. Cause like, have, have you guys read Trouble Boys, the Bob Mayer? The, uh, it's so depressing. Them? It's so depressing. Depressing. And, and I haven't been in the mood for it yet. I've got the audio book and I'm like, I'm not ready today. I'm not ready. Uh, it's, the, it's, it, the, it Stinson, hits, the Stinson history chapter is enough yeah, for you to like buy a gun. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it, so it's really sad. And what, what I like about it too is because I think for a lot of people mythologize that, oh, they never wanted to be famous or blah, blah, blah. And you read that book and you're like, no, that's not the case. They kind of just they didn't know how to handle it and were insecure and would self-sabotage and not yeah. in like a fuck the man way because you read it and you're like, no, they did want to make a lot of money and be famous, but they just didn't know how to negotiate those spaces. And I mean, it's like a lot of people that, that are depressed and struggle with mental illness who create art. It's almost like they hate themselves so much. They can't yeah. let themselves get to that point. And I, and I, I really appreciate that about the book because I think before then it was just like, Oh yeah, they're just giving a middle finger to the man. I'm like, no, I think they're just stupid. Um, they were kind of dumb. Yeah, stupid. And like you said, that make that does make them cooler and it makes them more relatable for morons like us growing up too. And you're like, because I think in a different world, yeah, um, when it began becomes this this insane '90s alt rock hit in the same yeah. way that that Hootie did, like you said. Well, I'm also thinking because you guys mentioned Open Season. I guess I probably heard Westerberg stuff on the single soundtrack That's, before I, it. I wanted to yeah. bring that up because I, it was weird that nobody mentioned that. But like, I don't think I was aware. I was just, I wasn't too, I wasn't cool enough for single. Yeah, exactly. You know? I, right. I knew the song and what it sounded like, and I knew I liked it, but I don't think I associated that. Oh, that that's the replacements guy. I, you know, I I knew singles is like that movie. We had like a bare bones DVD copy, and it was like, oh, it's got Eddie Vedder, and I'm like, cool, okay, you know, and like I didn't really like Pearl Jam that much. Like I no. like the first Pearl Jam album well enough, but Pearl I was Jam, just like, I never, I've never understood the appeal of Pearl. I think I, Pearl Jam actually got better. As they got older, because sometimes yeah. I'll hear their stuff now and they sound more punk to me than they did when they were doing kind of the droney uh, alterna grunge. Alterna yeah, right. yeah Backspacer is almost like more of a punk album than more so than something like Vitalogy or Tennis. Yeah. Yeah. And I it was like weird shit like that would just like come up and you're know, like having the Internet. So being able to like go backwards and read it and then, you know, like Tank Girl, uh, the cult shit show that that is they uh they wanted paul westerberg uh they wanted him to license androgynous for the soundtrack and joan jett was like oh well i want to sing it with him and they were like 
oh, he's not really cool. We want the guy from Bad Religion. And Joan Jett's like, he wrote the song. And they're like, yeah, but this is like a punk movie. We want the punk guy. So get get Greg Graffin or whatever the fuck his name is. And he was just like, cool. Yeah, I'm not punk enough for my own song. But then Westerberg and Joan Jett did the uh, the Cole Porter cover, right? Yeah. Her Tank Girl. And I think it was because they had to fight for it because they were just like, no, no, he's they, he's not allowed. They also did another song. There's a song. It's not credited to Paul Westberg, although he is uh, doing backup vocals on it. Backlash by Joan Jett. You ever hear that one? There's a cool video for it, too, because they're in the video together. Really? It's, it's Joan Jett doing a Paul Westerberg tune. And when yeah. you hear the song, you're like, oh, this is it's obviously a Paul Westerberg tune. Like just the way that <laughs> it's written and the way the Paul Westerberg like weirdly does the male female duet thing really well. It, yeah. it's, it, it's interesting. I think it's because he has that sense of melody and soul. Like I, I love that song Little Problem, uh, which is on All Shook Down. And I mean, who's the woman? I think they were dating, maybe. I, I mean, don't quote me on this. It was a few years ago. It may have been the last official release he had. He, oh, he did, Juliana like, a Hatfield. Yeah. Are they, are they, I don't know if I, they were ever officially involved. I can't keep I, up with Paul. I remember <laughs> um, Drew Fortune had an interview with him. I forget. He hung out magazine. his house. Yeah, he went to hung out his house. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds, it was, it's a great interview. And he, I think in that interview, Juliana Hatfield like had sent Paul Westbury a gift or something. And he like looks at it and he won't like comment on their relationship. He's like, oh, she just gets me. And I was like, oh, are they, I, I remember being like, are they, dating um but yeah who, who knows he's an elusive man it seems like was that the interview where he was like i didn't know it was happening and then the day of i had to go to his house because he doesn't mm-hmm. drive yeah I that's exactly that. one yeah that's yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, dude we freelanced with uh, uh wrote that and um yeah it's it's very uh even just reading about like his hand injury where you know most rock stars would be like oh like you know, like pete Pete Townsend, for instance, when he was doing the windmill for the Who and impaled his hand on his whammy bar, that's right. like a very rock star punk thing to happen, right? Paul Westerberg's hand injury was, oh, I was trying to scrape off some candle wax that dripped on on the table with a screwdriver and I accidentally <laughs> stabbed myself and ruined my guitar playing for years. I'm like, that that's a very the, replacement the, injury, the, a very depressing injury. The depressing <laughs> anti rock star lifestyle of the band, <laughs> except for Tommy, which is interesting because you got to figure. Tommy probably has never really had a true day job, right? Because oh, I'm convinced that, that man doesn't know what that means. When he was 12. <laughs> 14, I think. When 12, yeah. I think. Yeah, he was 12. Yeah. And when he had the most, like, after replacements with with Perfect and Bash and Pop, he actually had, I think, the most, um, maybe not the most popular solo career out of the band, but I feel like he was always putting stuff out. Like, he seems to be the one who sustained the most, the biggest level of music. Well, I mean, he joined all. fucking Guns N' Roses. That's right. Pretty <laughs> fucking cool, Guns right? Roses. I did hear. Was he in Soul Asylum for a little bit too? I think he played bass for Soul Asylum he as probably well. Probably did. And, um, uh, Soul yeah. Asylum's always uh, kind of shifting replacements adjacent. Out. Well, Dave Dave Perner, the singer of Soul Asylum, that's him on the beginning of Stink, where you hear right. the cops breaking up the party, and he's like, "Fuck <laughs> you, man!" That's him. that's like a teenage Dave Perner thing. Uh, I always thought it was interesting noting how Tommy Stinson started to look like Paul Westerberg. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you know that thing where you like, yeah, hey, I think it's like a weird genetic thing or something where you hang out with somebody so long you become brothers you start to look like brothers tommy lee and nikki six are kind of like that too weirdly and Tom, tommy lee being the younger one do, do you think also because paul from what, all accounts from what i've read and heard is that paul westerberg was actually more kind of more of a brother figure than bob stinson because bob Stinson had so many absolutely. issues so do you think part right. of it is just him trying to emulate westerberg a little bit oh absolutely I, he was he was influenced by him like he was probably the cool we keep it keeps going back to the cool older brother 
Yeah. Like you want to kind of dress like him a little bit. You want to get a little bit. Of... My favorite Tommy Stinson story is though, like as someone who tried to perfect his rock jumps and, you know, coming down on the, uh, the right note and everything he used to wear when he'd practice um, ankle weights. So that oh, really? His, so wait, so, so he's stronger when he would oh, take that's them interesting. off. I actually Ooh. saw I Ooh. saw Tommy Ooh. Stinson play at uh um oh my god double oh door. at Double Door actually I was at that wait show. sorry I'm actually no, no, I, I realizing I did not play Double Door I played Sub T Subterranean and and Shubas were the I just want to I want to set the record straight. Oh, you never played um, Double Door? No, no, I play because they're right next to each other. I know, <laughs> I knew I knew you were gonna say that. No, because because they're right next to each other. I played Sub T a few times, but not Sub not Double T door. was always by, despite the stairs. Yeah, was, that was always cool my favorite venue to play. Like the sound was always good, the crowd was always yes. good, the vibe was always good. But despite it being a club called Subterranean, it was on the second floor, and there was some fucking serious exorcist stairs that you would have to bring up your Fender Forte. Oh, it sucked. Yeah, no elevator <laughs> or anything. I guess it too. And, and Subterranean was nice because it was one of the spaces because the floor is really narrow. Like it's like this balcony surround overlooking this floor that connects to the stage. And because the floor is narrow, you could, if you got like 15, 20 people to show up, it could feel like it was a, oh. a pretty good crowd, which I always liked also. Quick totally subterranean right. story. And I'm going to start it with fuck Kumail Nujini. And here's why. <laughs> because Many reasons. <laughs> because we got asked by a promoter, the Romero. Buff looking motherfucker. <laughs> to, to, to play a show with some comedians. We were going to be the closing band. The comedians were opening up the show. Uh, so there were a couple of comedians. One of them was Kamel Najini, and the headliner was this guy Robert Buscemi, who I'm not sure what he's up to. He was kind of alternative weirdo fucking comedy, but I will I will give Kamel credit where credit was due. He was probably the funniest comedian on the bill. But by the time we got up there to play, the whole audience had left, including the comedians. And as we Ooh. all know, the number one rule in rock and roll is that yeah, you stick same. around and watch all the other fucking bands. And if you have to go, if your bass player has to go to work. You leave behind uh, somebody by proxy. You leave behind a representative to come. It's and always me. I stay until the last band. You stand, you stand at the <laughs> front of, and you don't even watch the whole band. You can go in the back of the venue and entertain your friends for most of the night. Cause I know that's what you have to do. You have to stand up at the front of the stage or across your arms, hold your beer, kind of nod your head through two songs, the two opening songs. And then you can walk to the back and do whatever the fuck you want, but you stay in that venue. <laughs> and then you say, what's up afterwards. That's yeah, like, hey, that's right. Yeah. Just never yeah. say you have a lot of energy up there because you have a yeah. lot of energy up there means you guys don't know how to play your instruments. You just jumped around a lot. And I always hated that fucking left-handed. You guys got me going left-handed fucking <laughs> compliment. So fuck Kumail Najini because he did not stick around and watch the Romeros. But I will say we had a guest list that night and we had up to 10 people and none of the Romeros fans who did come to watch us had to pay to get in. So fuck. Em. Hell yeah. And we got a hundred dollars. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> split between, <laughs> split between four fucking band members. That's so that's always my thing is everyone's like, oh, I'm going home. And I'm like, oh, I got to stick around to collect the money. Cause they're like, yeah. I like everyone I play with. They're a couple years older than me, and they've been doing it longer. And like our guitar player's thirty six. He's like, I gotta be up in the morning. I don't care about this. <laughs> if it's not a band that we're playing with, that he's like, oh, I love this band. Josh is like, yeah, I'm going home. And I'm just like, to I gotta it. collect the money. You have to have one representative. You don't. I don't ask yeah. the whole band to stick around. You know. And I'm. But it's I'm always also, me. <laughs> I'm also a ding dong. Like even if I did have to get up at nine, I'm like, ah, fuck it. I'm already out. Maybe I'll hang. I'll have a couple more beers, you know. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, with Elizabeth Dane, we we used to play this place called um 
Oh man, it's so funny, dude. It, uh, do you ever get like depressed when you can't remember a venue you've been to in a long? I can't remember the fucking name now. It was this yes. place on uh, Lincoln uh, near Victory Gardens in Lincoln Park? Uh, we was, we used to play all the time. Total dive. Anyway, uh, like Lily's an actual venue called. or a bar? What was the name of it? No, it was a bar. Lily, Lily's. Then they they would yeah. We we got to this point where we were playing playing pretty regularly regularly there. And if you brought a certain amount of people, you could make a decent amount of money. But uh, yeah, it was left on me to stick around and collect the cash at the end of the night, which made sense because like. May usually lugged all the gear because she had the car. Um, and then, you know, same with you, Vanderbilt. I'd like just like to stay out late. And, uh, but we had, my friend was opening for us and he, he, uh, he didn't pull in a bunch of people. And so, and he was unclear about what the door arrangement was and he was kind of drunk too. And I remember getting our cut of it. And then the bouncer was like, oh no, you, he wasn't getting any kind of payout and he got really pissed off at it i had to do like damage control between i mean and it was kind of a shitty arrangement because it was pretty much like oh which band are you here to see you know that yeah that kind of yeah. um, oh. thing and he just didn't bring it up and i felt bad i think i just i think i just split the door with him or something but like yeah it was super the money stuff always stressed me out because of situations like that like oh, and yeah. i'm not and i'm not good at like i'm good at calming people down i'm not good at being confrontational I, I'm so. the same way um but I think I, the one controversial opinion I have is that there's this idea that all the money should go to the touring band, which in theory I agree with, but it's like, it's not like I strapped my guitar to my back and walked here, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. I need gas money too. That's why I always felt like it should be up to the band to decide to give the money to the touring band. Everybody should get paid for that show, especially if you're collecting a cover. Right when we so when we play when a we play local on a cut, a drink special on a cut at the door the best guarantees I've ever had right when when we play Akron we're just like okay you know all the all the money can go to the touring band because we all live in Akron so it's like we're driving five ten minutes we don't care right but like if we play Cleveland we're like all right man like twenty bucks like please that's all we're asking for oh. you know if we're playing somewhere in the state of Ohio. 20 to 40 bucks like we're reasonable people oh, but yeah. i'm like well, if, if you gotta make us rent a van and drive two states away like a hundred bucks something like we're, we're come on <laughs> i don't want and i don't want to come off and sound like a jerk about the touring van because i played plenty of shows in milwaukee but the problem is that anytime like the money should come to me because i'm in the touring band right i never got any of that fucking money yeah 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 <laughs> like why are we, the why do the rules change when it has to go into my pocket fuck you guys we played a show in Pittsburgh like a month and a half ago, and there was a snowstorm that started in Ohio and followed us. <laughs> and we, you know, we get there, we play the band before us. They're all drunk. They play for 45 minutes. Our set's like a max of 20 minutes. That's if we play all of our songs. And we're like, come on, dude. And then the dude that runs the venue, he's like, the venue closes at 11 oh. exactly. It's 1049. And I'm like, all right, fuck you. We're about to do it. And we play nine minutes. And then this dude hands us $25 and says, hey, we really appreciate you guys coming out here. <laughs> and my drummer is like, we drove a rickety van two hours. And then it took us four hours to get home because Pittsburgh's two hours from Akron. And he's like, if we ever play Pittsburgh again, they're just giving us at least a hundred dollars. Yeah, you like, know, that, I don't that, care. He's like, we're rock starring the shit out of them. Now you have a good road story, though. At least you got the, <laughs> at least you got the twenty five bucks. Now, speaking of bands being drunk on stage, one of the things that's romanticized about the replacements are Fuck the drunken yeah. shows. Yeah, but I, I mean, you know, looking at, I wasn't there, but like thinking about that, I think if I went to see the replacements and I got one of those, not the drunken shows where they're half assing covers. The shows where they couldn't stand up, I think I would have been pissed and want my money back. 
That's I know we romanticize it now, but do you think right, you guys yeah. would have been pissed at the time? What, what's that? Uh, what's that live album? That, then the shit hits the fans yeah, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, shower and shave, maybe. Yeah, although maybe may that kind of show maybe I would be okay with, but yeah, like the the completely there's a fine like all right on SNL like when they played SNL that yeah. level of drunk it would be I think the sweet that's spot appropriate. For me to see yeah. That. yeah, I mean, yeah. At the same time, sad also sad because one of them died of, of addiction issues, but. As far as like the playing goes, if I saw that, but yeah, that's like the just the level, the like oh we're yeah we're so drunk we're just puking and falling down and not finishing stuff. Yeah, I mean any band I'd see, I, I don't yeah. I don't expect that of any musician I go and see that would that would piss me off. I I think that they you know like they like like what Vanderbilt's saying like the romanticism of it they've really like they've nailed down that image for so many years of like this is what you got nine times out of ten, but I think it would definitely just. It, it, even if I got a set where it's like, oh, they're only playing covers, like you never get a replacement song. It's funny, you know, it's cool, it's punk, quote unquote. But at the same time, I'm like, come on, man, like I just want to hear Answering Machine. Like I don't want to hear Chuck Berry for 45 minutes. Well, and once again, I think that is that byproduct. I, I don't even think that's a, oh, look how contrarian we're being. I think that's the, oh, we're drunk and we're afraid to really go for it. Sure. So it's yeah. that self sabotage well, thing again. You yeah. Know? yeah. The let it be record release show where they're like, we're going to play nothing but covers because we know <laughs> yeah. that someone wants to sign us. <laughs> like, no, exactly. Yeah. Oh, in, in the days in Romero's, like, because Pat O'Sullivan, I turned him on to the replacements and we were big replacement. Sometimes we felt that need to get like, oh, we're just like the replacements getting drunk. And it's like, nah, you guys just look kind of foolish on stage afterwards. Because <laughs> uh, I kind of came around, I don't drink before I play anymore. Like the last couple of years I was playing out, like I, I, I would order one beer when I was going up to the stage, which would usually fall off my amp anyway. Yeah. And I would, I ne- I would never finish it. I could do like a drink before we played and then that would, ha- I would usually have a drink on stage. Any shows I played where I, w- I'm, I'm just not, not just um, playing music, but writing too. I'm not one of those people who is like, oh yeah, I have to get, I have to really alter my mind to get in the zone. Oh. I, I just, when I do that, I might think I'm doing something good and then I'll read it the next day and be like, God, that was complete shit. I've, seen, <laughs> tapes, just really I've seen tapes of those shows where one, I remember one show, play, well, this is actually kind of a funny, this is actually a very replacement that story. We were playing as a three piece at Champs in Oak Lawn, which was kind of a, it was a remember Mar- remember Marty and the Love Hammers from <laughs> yeah. uh, that NXS show. Uh, oh wait, no, 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 no. Sorry, I actually don't. Wait, Marty and the Love Hammers. The Love Hammer. It was Marty. Uh, he ended up going on tour with his band with NXS. He won that TV show. Oh, I don't think. I, oh, oh, the, I I know the show you're talking about, but no, yeah, I don't know. They were from the South Side of Chicago. And uh, there was a scene kind of in the late 90s, them and Loudmouth. There's a band called Loudmouth that played around, and they ended up on the Varsity Blues soundtrack. And I remember at Chicago Ridge Mall, it was all the buzz because the local boys had made good, you know? And they played at Champs in Oak Lawn. This was like the spot. Disturbed got their start there. It was just a scene. And we played a show there, and it was kind of a, we felt like a coup, right? And we were so fucking drunk at that show, like obnoxious. <laughs> the drummer took a piss break at one point, and when I yelled at Pat about it the next day, he goes, "When did Scott take a piss break?" I'm like, "See, you don't even remember this happening." <laughs> but the promoter liked us so much, we got a slot opening for Local H at the New Champs that was opening up like two months later. So. I, I, as much as I say, nobody does anything better drunk. Maybe it was better that we were drunk that night. We, 
my old band opened for Doyle from the Misfits, and the only reason why we did it was because I wanted to meet Doyle. Like I, I was like, "You guys are playing the show. I want to meet Doyle," and so we did it. And then we wound up selling the most tickets somehow. Whatever, blah blah blah. So we played right before Doyle, and uh, we got on stage, and I was like. Hey, I'm really sorry. We're a basement band. We don't sound like any of these other bands. And the promoter was like, that was so cool. You guys were so badass. Do you want anything? Like, do you want to keep playing shows here? And I was like, oh, that wasn't like a joke. Like, I, we don't sound like any of these. I just wanted to meet Doyle. He's like, oh, you guys can meet Doyle. And so, you know, everyone else paid their, paid their $25 to meet Doyle. And Becca and I met Doyle for free. And I got my weird pre-signed glossy eight and a half by 11. Awesome. <laughs> Well, the funny, um, yeah, the funny thing about that local H show was that we opened for local H. Are you guys, are you guys familiar with local H, Dan? Uh, I know you I, gotta be. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I only no. know down for the floor in Chicago. In, in Chicago. It's a rite of passage to open for local H, and I think I'd done it like three or four <laughs> times. But the lead and the lead singer Scott Lucas, he uh, he appears to be a prickly sort. But one night after a Tommy Stinson show, he was DJing at Liars Club, which is a cool punk bar in Chicago. So I went there to have a drink afterwards and uh, Scott and I ended up talking about movies and now we're like best buds. Like I've got Scott from local H's number in my phone and I've done his podcast and he comes down to the drive-in. He came down to the drive-in to see Jaws at Rockdown Public House. And it's just weird. Like musicians sometimes don't want to talk about their, they want, he doesn't want to talk about his band, but he <laughs> loves movies. So you talk about movies with him, you know, he loves it. And I, I, I don't know if he, he, he also seems to have a pretty good memory. So he probably does remember the dorks that opened for him at champs in Oak Lawn. <laughs> Boyd Brown, you were going to say something. What's up, buddy? Oh yeah. Uh, Mike talked about them uh, last time we had him on. Cause you said that the front man of uh, local H, his favorite movie, Texas Chainsaw 2. He did. He did do an intro for Texas Chainsaw 2 for the music box of horrors driving. Yeah. Okay. Just okay. a real nice guy, but like, yeah, it's just weird thinking like, here's a guy who, when I was a teenager, was selling his CDs at Camelot, and I knew people that just loved this band. Then right. I ended up opening for him, and now like I would, has, I would call him a friend. Like he's a guy yeah. who, if I see him at the bar, it's not weird. It's not like, oh hey Scott Lucas from Little Clay. Oh hey Scott, what's up? Right, and we'll Hell sit, yeah. we'll sit and talk about what's going on at the music box that month. So um, Dan's got like 15 minutes left, so I'm gonna I'm gonna speed round the shit yes. out of this. Um, we should do a part what, two. We should come back and do a part two. I, I was gonna say I, I think we should. Yeah. <laughs> um, what uh, what's the worst live show you guys have ever seen? Oh man, you guys ask good questions. Like, because he asked me about the worst horror movie, Vanderbilt. Do you have one off the top of your head? I'm I need thinking, to think. Um, I can't say worst, but I remember. Going to see Rhett Miller solo at the Park West, Rhett Miller of old 97s, who I always loved. And I love him so, but the drummer he had in that era of the band, I, I, I feel like she just sucked all the energy out of the band. <laughs> and that could just be me. I don't know. I, I just remember thinking, man, this is not the Rhett Miller show that I'm used to seeing. It was still an okay show, but the drummer just didn't have the... The, the 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 kick the energy that I, I wanted to hear out of a Red Miller show. I've yeah I've got two examples. It's tough because I wish I had some like oh something crazy happened on stage, but that right. would kind of make the show good, right? Like right. Never, that, memorable that well. at least, right? But yeah, but yeah the, the ones I think of it. So there's this band Y Oak who I, I like, and um, and 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 once again I understand this because I, I've been on stage. I know what that feels like, but we. We saw her, we saw them open, I think for the Decemberists or something. I don't remember. They're opening for someone and 
they sounded fine. They were good. And the lead singer just kept apologizing for how bad the sound quality yeah. was to the point where she kept like asking the sound guy to change stuff. And it was just real. I'm like, no, you sound fine. It was just like the insecurity coming out. And then we saw them at Lollapalooza and she did the same thing again. <laughs> and she, and then at the end she was like, Oh, I want to, I just want to thank you guys for sticking with me. I know this sound is awful, this or that. And you're like, no, just like own it. Like it, it's that thing. I mean, it's the theater background. It's the thing of like, you know, you don't draw attention to when you flub oh. your line and, and you just don't, don't apologize unless something truly awful is happening and let on me stage. Jump in on that real fast. Cause that was, please go ahead. Yeah. No, I please. always hated when, you know, playing out with local bands, there were a lot of bands we play it where the singer be like, Oh, I'm sorry. I have a cold. Sorry about this. Sorry about that. Like, Oh shit. I've played, I played ill. I played with the flu. Like you get up there yeah. and you pretend like nothing's wrong. Cause those people are there to see you play. And nobody has sympathy for you. Like, you have 45 minutes, sometimes 20, to be the coolest yeah. person in the room. Do it. Yeah. And also, too, most and most of the time, too, the audience is already having a good time. And we had already, in both instances, they sounded good. And it was just, and once again, I get it. Like, I get the nerves that come with that. And when and artists tend to be delicate and insecure <laughs> anyway. But it was just this thing, like, like the only one who feels this way is you and you're now you're making it worse for the people who paid money to see you're you. Making so, it yeah. uncomfortable. You're making it weird. Yeah. yeah. And I always hated that. So I always like, there was a rule. Like the Romero's did have a lot of rules. No shorts, on, <laughs> no, no shorts on stage. Uh, nobody's here to hear you. Nobody's here to hear your stand up routine. Uh, <laughs> just fucking let's one song into the next. Hi, we're the Romero's one song into the next. We have a record for sale. One song into the next. Nobody wants to hear. <laughs> yeah, you. Nobody's paying good. to hear you fucking talk. That's a podcast or for. <laughs> um, what's uh, what's your guys's dream band horror movie combo? Like you know, uh, oh, like yeah. fucking Dream Warriors or you know something like that. You know, like they write the the theme oh, for it. In a perfect world, the Dream Police would have been a Nightmare on Elm Street title, and Fuck the yeah. Cheap Trick song would have been <laughs> the theme to it. So you're talking you're talking about the marriage of sound and fi- so not like not like oh the band does a horror movie but more they they do the music for this franchise or something yeah, like that yeah 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 and uh, I mean Dream Police definitely works but I mean if you're like oh dude I love Bonnie Vare I want Bonnie Vare to do the intro for Hereditary like whatever you know it doesn't have yeah, to be already written no what I would actually really love and they I mean they do a lot of film work already anyways I'm a big Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds fan of course yeah and it's funny I think I talked about them on the last episode with you guys um and Nick Cave and one of the Bad Seeds and he's also in Grinder Man Warren Ellis they've done a yeah. ton of film scores they did The Road and they actually have a whole album compilation of their film stuff i think and they do the, the, this really ominous drony kind of country um atmospheric that, that's, that's the best way i can describe it so i feel like they could actually do some really cool scoring to the original texas chainsaw massacre that's the right thing immediate, like oh, that's where cool. we see that the sunspots and all that red stuff in the beginning which has a great sound on it under it already it's not that i need that to change but i feel like they would be well suited to do this kind of doom laden uh country thing so that would be a right fun the ki- Warren how, Ellis. how have the killers how have the killers a band called the killers <laughs> you know, never done a song for a horror movie the closest thing well, especially, especially with like Shadow. a lot of the new horror aesthetic like fear street and all that stuff i feel like the killers would actually fit like that kind of neon vibe yeah get really them well. because they did a cover of uh go all the way about a raspberries for the dark shadows soundtrack which is horror adjacent but they're called the fucking killers man 
they did they did a song called like Vampire Love Song for uh, the New Moon soundtrack, and it's a really cool song. I don't think I know, Twilight's I, got some good. As a killer fan, yeah. I don't think I know. I don't know if I've ever actually listened to that one. Man, it's good. Twilight, it's good. Big Twilight guys on this podcast. I, yeah, I was gonna say Blade and I are <laughs> huge Twilight fans. I like that Death Cat, the uh, Meet Me at the Equinox. Uh, Great song. Yeah, I, I wrote a book on Radiohead that came out last year, and um, I actually had to write about. Uh, I think Fifteen Step was like the first time an in rainbow song was used in a movie. And it was, and it was weirdly right when in Ra- rainbows came out, which is pretty mm-hmm. rare for Radiohead. Um, and it, but it's used really weirdly. It's when she's like walking down the stairs at the end during the credits. Um, yeah, it's very strange, but anyway. Um, what's your, uh, what's your guys' desert Island band? Oh, everybody, Ooh. everybody, know, everybody already knows mine. Is yeah, it really cheap trick? trick. trick. There are they like you could never get tired of them. No, because I mean, and here's a it is a, here's to bring it back to the replacements for a minute. Yeah, I still yeah. love the replacements, but I and I went to the reunion shows, but I feel like a little bit of the legacy, the legend, was kind of tarnished by some of that for me personally, mm-hmm. where it was like, okay, I've seen them now, and they maybe overstayed their welcome a little bit, so a little bit of the sheen wore off. Of sure, the okay. For okay. me, or someone like a band like Cheap Trick, like they've just been consistently putting out great to pretty good records <laughs> for years. So you got a nice catalog of stuff to go to that desert island with you. Okay. Yeah, I'm, it's funny because I'm tempted to say like Pavement or Bruce Springsteen, who are my two favorite yeah. um, acts. However, I already know all their stuff so well. Like, I don't think I'm going to discover anything new in the music that I haven't already. Um, Someone like Neil Young may make more sense. He's also one of my favorites, but he just has more albums and more to delve into. Yeah. But I'm not going to say any of them. I'm actually going to say, I'm going to say Elvis Costello. And that's not because Elvis Costello is my absolute favorite. I like his stuff. Um, and I know the sort of first few albums like Armed Forces, um, This Year's Model, uh, mm-hmm. the yeah, the um, My Aim is True. I know those really well. And I've always been meaning to get into the rest of his stuff, but I just never have. And There's so I feel so like I'm going to be like, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's exactly, and, and and I'm every sure every release, like... every all the CD releases always have a full disc of extra <laughs> material. Yeah, exactly. The, the, and... Those Rhino reissues they kill you. Yes. You know? so the, the Ramones are my all time favorite band, and the Rhino Ramones. reissue, I'm like, this is like three more albums for a Ramones yeah. album. Like, <laughs> I keep I keep waiting for them to do because I feel like they reissued everything through. They haven't done like Animal Boy onward, and I and they, I actually like those later records. A record lot, Store so. Day just had the Sire era as a box. So, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. To, yeah, did they remaster yeah. it because they have Animal Boys one of one of them. I don't know to, if they did because it was like four hundred dollars, yeah. so I didn't buy it. Blue <laughs> yeah. going streaming, but, but yeah, yeah so, right? so I think buy it again. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, and so, so I think when I think of that, I would think I would choose Elvis Costello because I know I would like most of it. I'm pretty sure I would. I just yeah. like Vanderbilt said, I just haven't gotten into it because I'm like, there's so much of it, and he, and the guy is prolific as hell. And right. I feel like if I'm going to be on a desert island for a while, I want someone whose music I know I'm going to like, but there's still a lot to discover in it, and that's and how I feel. Right about on. It. It's so funny you mentioned that because that's exactly how I feel about Elvis Costello because I love him. I, yeah, he's I, great. He's right in my wave of newer power pop new wave mm-hmm. like yeah yeah and i just i don't know everything by him but every time i do hear like an old song by him I'm like oh man i should go check out that whole fucking record and you're like oh wait there's right. 40 more <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's what it like i do He's kind of cool love it because you get like then you get his crooner stuff a little bit later he, he went country with, uh, yeah. with uh, and then um, he has that album with the roots and everything. It, it is fun. And then the I, he, I haven't heard it yet. The one he put out recently, I think it's just like a throwback to the stuff with the attractions. It, it is funny because as much as 
it's nice to get into a band and there's like a treasure trove of, of material um, to, that, you know, you'll get through. I also love like when I first got a pavement, I'm like, Oh, they have five records and they're all amazing. Great. Like that's really digestible and okay, cool. They have these reissues. If I want, I can get into the EPs and the B sides, but like it, it's, it's all, it's refreshing when you get into an, an act and you're like, cool, they're not getting back together anytime soon. They're not playing any more music. I can like, really obsessed over this band and it's not going to take me a century to get I've through heard it all right. I've heard, you can have right. an, you have yeah. an opinion on every one of their songs because yeah. there are even I'm sure there are cheap trick songs that if somebody brought up some deep cut off of one of their later 80s record I'd have to be like I don't know if I know that one you yeah. know right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly um so the last question from me in your perfect world who would write the theme for the Irishman <laughs> <laughs> wait wait is it that's is, not on the fucking is it still the same robbie robertson blues theme just done by or, or like or like no we're gonna do a new a new theme song oh. for a, a, a new a new theme song okay yeah. uh i yeah. think uh, real a, real halloweeny head who's a, who's a good italian rock singer <laughs> i want danzig to do the theme for the irish you know what that actually might be pretty good if he does that kind of <laughs> slow elvis thing yeah. You know who would be good mentioning Italy is, is uh, Mike Patton uh, from, you know, Fit the well, War Tomahawk. Mean, he's, yeah, he's a insane musician. Like, he can oh, yeah, do and, like, so and much. He, he, he can fit into any kind of genre. Yeah. And he actually has this really deep knowledge of just Italy in general, Italian history, but also Italian music. So he put out a solo record of like crooning Italian pop songs in Italian. So I feel like he could have that kind of toughness that the Irishman requires, the gangster element, right. just because of his, the energy he brings to his more heavy metal and, and oh. rock uh, uh, prog stuff. But also, he, 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 yeah, he could uh, add add a little bit of the spice. I don't know if he is Italian or not, but I know he knows a lot about it. You guys him, are all so, yeah. wrong. Frank Stallone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had a weird answer, but all right. What is it, Blade? Hit me David with it. David Byrne. Ooh. Oh, David Byrne would be good, no, that too. Would, yeah, that yeah. would fit, too. Like, that's, like, appropriate for a Scorsese. Of course, Scorsese would get, like, somebody like David Byrne, right? Yeah. yeah well, cause, and cool. I, I know Scorsese didn't do Stop Making Sense, but I feel like Jonathan Demme, like, him and Jonathan Demme do sim- have done well, similar music they're documentaries. That, they're so. that, they're, they come from that Corman school. So also, Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's also my Desert Island answer. I'd take David Byrne's work with me because there's so many. I mean, great there's a ton, yeah. His St. Vincent stuff, his uh, fucking solo stuff, I, all the I saw his, uh, his musical American Utopia a few months ago. It was great. Like, he um, kind of read, I mean, from that solo album but then a lot of redone versions of his more famous songs so yeah he's excellent yeah right on mr bicycle man himself oh we got all right we got to come back and all three of us or four of us come back and do this again yeah i would love to love to have all the halloweenies and just punish y'all about like music and movies yeah these are great questions that would be a four fucking hour episode if you get all of us on there though we'd have to do like a sunday like we'd start at like 10 a.m chicago time vanderbilt (laughs) would be miserable we would have to make we would have to make use for this uh the the, hand hand i like how it moves your screen up a little bit yeah it's really funny um (laughs) <laughs> dan dan what would you like to promote how how can we find oh, you, you know in the since, world? since we're talking music i wish i had some new music i, I you know i did put out i i re, i've been working on material for the next methodist hospice out methodist hospital album for a while now the covid the pandemic obviously me and may not being in the same city has put a damper on that a little bit um 
so I, anyway, go to methodisthospital.bandcamp.com. You can listen to, you can download all their shit for free. Uh, Giants is the album I mentioned that uh, Robert Kriskow reviewed. I feel like an asshole promoting something old because that record's like four years old at this point. But like, I haven't really put out any, any new music since then. I have one demo song that I wrote uh, during quarantine called Quarantine Punks that you can listen to. Um, and then also uh, the Elizabeth Dane um, and um, Library Ghost, which are the bands I've had with Mike and uh, Mac. Uh, you can, yeah, if you just go to my website, dancaffeywrites.com, click on music. I think I have links to all three bands. So right yeah, on. go yeah. and hopefully I'll put out some more soon. It's uh, as Vanderbilt was saying, the logistics of getting together and recording are, are not what they used to be. So, but hopefully yeah. in the next year I can put out this, uh, this next album. Vanderbilt, before you promote your stuff, I would just like to say it'd be real cool if you put your shit on something other than SoundCloud. I was trying to listen to the Romeros, and I'm like, I got to go through SoundCloud. Oh, when you, press, it, man. It's when so you easy. press the back button, it takes you to the top of the page. It like that website sucks so I bad. I don't man. even know why I ended up putting. I think it was just, yeah. I mean, I think it does probably pre Bandcamp didn't become the main say, thing yeah. until there, until the past few years. Yeah, like SoundCloud are, was huge up until like five years ago when Bandcamp was like the easy option. So well, I get of, it. There's a lot of Romero's. Not there's some good Romero stuff. There's a really there's one kind of lame EP and one good EP on Spotify. There's the Cooler <laughs> Than Your Boyfriend EP, which uh, should be better than it actually is. We recorded it analog, and we learned our lesson that we are not a band that should record analog. Right. Uh, and then there's the halfway there EP that's on Spotify. Um, but I, I just kind of never got around to getting it on there because it costs money. And I was like, we're really not doing anything anymore, but you're right. You're right. I should put it out there as a record of this stuff because the best recording the Romero's have is that live album on SoundCloud. Yeah. That's the best, Cause I think when it, our big mistake that we ever, the biggest mistake we made was going into the studio was trying to polish ourselves up and track, you know, stuff. And we should have yeah, yeah, just yeah. been, recording ourselves live with a couple overdubs speaking of which i would like to promote myself for dan if you're looking for a guitar player or a bass player for any of your musical uh uh projects i'll be happy to come along and 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 play along with you guys oh that'd be up for sure man i mean i ideally i would love to get back to chicago i had this out it's this concept i'm about this town in south jersey and i, I want to get back to chicago and just like record it in like a week period or you know something i have a like basement. that yeah, what do you say? I have a basement. Wait, do you really? Yeah. We should we should talk. I need to I need to finish writing the thing first. Maybe you, me, and May can get together and, I have a, and Mac too. I, Everyone, I have a to, basement. Uh, I can get drums over here. I've got instruments galore, amps. Uh, it was typical. As soon as I had a house with a basement, I didn't have a band anymore. Yeah, right. I know exactly. Yeah, one and it was the same thing. Like as soon as I got my shit together with that one album. I had to, I left Chicago to go to grad school, you know, and um, <laughs> I think that subject gets harder as you get older, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully something will happen soon. But yeah, you Blade, can, do you want to promote your music, buddy? No, I want to tell everybody to listen to the talking heads. Uh, that's my <laughs> takeaway from this one. Go listen to the talking heads. They're pretty good. Yeah. Uh, that's what I got. What the talking got? heads always kind of, the thing that kind of fascinates me with talking heads is how it intersects between people who like old punk and hippies who are into the Grateful Dead, like they inter there's a Venn diagram, and the intersection is the Talking Heads. <laughs> yeah, we brought I, it up, and now I can't stop thinking about them. So I'm gonna listen to the Talking Heads on my way to the concert. Um, I don't know. I don't. I think we're. I think we're cool. Um, Vanderbilt, what would you? Uh, what would you like to promote? Uh, would you like to promote for me, uh, motherfucker? Out Proper outro because we fucked up the first one. That's right, Vanderbilt. Please do the promotions, baby. So follow me on Twitter at 
Mike Vanderbilt. Now with blue checkmark, verified, the real deal, <laughs> except no substitutes. And please follow, uh, check me out on Halloweenies. We're covering the Evil Dead this year. Uh, my new podcast, Cheap Tracks. Uh, we have just recorded our fourth episode. We're uh, going through the history of Cheap Trick, song by song. We just recorded an episode on 2003's Pop Drone. Of course, Windy City Double Feature Picture Show is still rocking and rolling. We just did an episode on Windows and Norman Is That You. And Centerfold, Revealing Culture Through Playboy Magazine, will return. It's just when you, as I just rattled off all these podcasts that I'm part of, <laughs> it's, sometimes it's hard to find time, but I do enjoy doing that one, and that will be back as well. And um, when is this episode going to air, guys? Uh, it'll be next Friday the 6th. Friday the 6th. I... Uh, I'll give a little tease that everybody should uh, be ready for May 14th. Um, you may have seen an image that I shared on social media this week, and all your questions will be answered. Hell yeah. I'm going to look at it right now. Weird it's not up yet. It won't be up until next week. Ooh. Oh, you're not but showing can... the image yet? No. Right. Well, he's, he's I... saying it in the future, dumbass. Well, I'm saying like you'll, oh. if, it goes up this, if it goes up next Friday... <laughs> We're, ta- we're traveling through time on oh, the Lucha okay. Bordello podcast. Pretend but... that uh, I just saw it. And wow, that's very cool, Mike. Good picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you wait, when, as soon as you guys stop the recording, I'll tell you what it is. All right, we're getting um, out of here. Anything for you, Butcher? Uh, well, we should also promote Caffrey. Uh, he does Losers Club. Um, it's pretty cool. As someone that does not care about Stephen King, I also still listen to it. Uh, and. Yeah, I don't know. Griphook is, in fact, my band. Uh, other Fanderbilts listen to my band where all our songs are about slasher movies. I make Mike promote us, even though I know he doesn't like it. Oh, no, 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 no. Bullshit. I know you're being I know you're being facetious, but <laughs> I, I as somebody who, as we have said, I, I have a verified Twitter account. I, I have developed a large following of probably what is mostly bots and porn sites. But <laughs> I love when people tag me and stuff because I'll retweet it. Like, all you're doing looking to get some eyes on stuff, man. And if I can help somebody out who's, you know, just out on the hustle, I want to do it. I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure other people have said it, but I'm going to, I'm going to jerk them off right now. Mike Vanderbilt said once, uh, no one's going to promote you like you do. And I think that that's the real deal shit. Mike Vanderbilt is absolutely the man of the people, you know, the, the icon of the underdogs. He, every time I'm like, Oh, I'm doing this thing. And Vanderbilt promotes it. I see, I see people, you know, mid thirties, mid forties, women promoting their only fans. There's Mike Vanderbilt saying he likes boobs. Let me talk. It's about, real deal shit, dude. Let me talk about two things on that point. I know. <laughs> then, then we'll end. And then we'll wrap this episode up. I'm two like, yeah, is yeah, this yeah, a fucking fine. bonus episode, dude? I gotta go. Every- sometime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Everybody runs their fucking mouth about sex work being real work, right? A lot of these blue check Mark types, a lot of these journalist types. And, but nobody wants to <laughs> pardon the pun. Nobody wants to put their money where their mouth is and actually yeah. help these OnlyFans uh, men, women, whoever's on OnlyFans, help them yeah. actually garner an audience. And sometimes a retweet is all it takes. And two, on the subject of promoting yourself, you know, when people do talk to me, I have to deal with this mostly in person about my ego or whatever that, or the way, <laughs> or the way I promote. I always tell them. You know what? Instead of worrying about what the fuck I'm doing, how about you do something you're proud of and tell everybody about it? Damn, I, really I, yeah, fuck yeah. I'm so, sorry. I get so mad. About no, that. I get so no, I, feelings about I, it. I, I, I think it's I think it's the fucking truth, man. All right. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you for that four minute of denim. 
Uh, I am going to go get ready for a concert. Have a good night, y'all.